727 crashes on a turn to get to the runway at the Cincinnati airport. How did this flight crash into the ground miles from the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. This is episode 11. 11. This comes out after the New Year, right? No, this comes out New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. Well, Happy New Year's, everybody. Yeah, this is the last one of 2019. 2019. Of the decade. Wow. I mean, that doesn't really mean Someone said that. We were in rehearsal the other night, and our band director said that. He was like, this is our last song of this decade. We were like, no, I don't like that. Stop that. Yeah. Don't do that. (laughs) That means I get to say at the end of this podcast, we'll talk to you in the new decade. The next decade. (laughs) The roaring 20s. Don't get mad at me. That's just what I'm going to say. You've been pre-warned. Also, we're going to give you the whole spiel of this flight, but after the flight, we're going to plug a bunch of our Patreon stuff. So, if you don't want to support us, you can skip it, I guess. Rude. Also, real quick, I am sick. Again, still. I still Thanks am. to Nick. You're welcome. Yeah. Hey, I've had it for like seven weeks. Well, it's not the okay. same one, but I've had Listen. it for like... I've had this for like seven weeks now, being sick. Like, it, this isn't the only one. Like, I had a cold and then an ear infection and then another weird cold. That <laughs> is now what... <coughs> that's why she's coughing. Yeah. So, I feel a lot better. We're actually recording this way later than we usually would in the week. Because I was still half dead. (laughs) And we also had a concert. And then we were going to do it on Tuesday. And I was like, friends, I still am death. I can't talk without coughing. So I might end up coughing while I'm talking. Happens a lot. BT dubs. We want to give a huge congratulations to Miranda. Miranda. She is graduated. She graduated. And I got a, a jab. She oh, did get a and job. She has a job. Yeah. She got a jiggity job. Teaches small children at a place. At the music's at the place. Yep. With the stuff. She starts in the new year. She starts almost, on the sixth. Yeah. Almost it's my right dad's away. birthday. Nice. Yeah. So and congratulations to everyone else um who may have graduated over winter. Not a lot of not a lot of people do, but if you did. Or if you got a new job. Good job. Good job to you. So You made it. All right, Nick, what are we covering today? Okay, so today we're covering American Airlines 383, the first one. We have to specify that because there are two incidents with this flight number. One occurred in 1965, that is the one we are covering today, and the other occurred in 2016, yep. very recently. And this flight number is still used. Yeah, to this day Obviously, still used. when you said the first time. Yep. I mean, no, like it's still used. Even after the second one, it's still used. Yeah, but did anyone die after the second one? No, but people died in this one. Oh, well, you know, back then they didn't know they should change it. Yeah, I think... Here, let me Google it real quick. Doing I know some what the second one was. I know what the second one was. But. So, American Airlines 383 currently is a flight from San Francisco to Miami. At this moment. Done every day. Nice. Wow. Okay. Which is not what either one of these two incidents were. No, I don't remember what the flat, the second one was. Uh, I don't know, but I know where it left out of, and I know that it wasn't any of that. Oh, that one was leaving... Chicago. O'Hare. To Cat. Miami. 
So Miami is still involved, but whatever. Okay. The point is, this is an old flight and not talked about all that often. So we're doing it today. And then we are doing the one in 2016 next year. Next year. Anywho. So, American Airlines 383, the first one, was on November the 8th of 1965. It was a 727-100. They were very new at the time. 1965 would have been before the 737 or the 747 had been introduced. The flight was from LaGuardia in New York to the Greater Cincinnati Airport, which is now the Northern Kentucky International Airport in Cincinnati. What? It's much bigger now than it was then. It was only a single runway airport then. Now it's a major operating spot. Why is Kentucky involved? Because it's Cincinnati. That's where Cincinnati is. It's partially in in Ohio. It's partially in Ohio, and most of it's in Kentucky. You learn something new every day. I had no idea. The Ohio River, which is mentioned in this report, splits the two states. Ah, got it. Okay. Okay, cool. I'm just continuous. Yep. Let me put it this way. It's in Kentucky by like three miles. Anyways, captain for this flight was David J. Thielen. He was 46 years old. He had 16,387 hours total of which 225 were in the 727, so he was pretty new. The first officer was William J. O'Neill. He was 39. He had 14,400 hours total, of which 35 hours were on the 727, so he was even newer on the type. And the flight engineer was John T. Lavoie. He was 33. He had 6,047 hours total. He only had 307 on the 727, so everybody was brand new to the type because the type was new. But... You said that the first officer is also a captain? Yes. The first officer is also a captain. He just finished his training very recently for becoming a captain of the 727. It took him a little bit to get to that point. However, on this flight, he was operating as the first officer still because he still needed to get hours. He still needed to get some hours, so he did. And uh, he became captain, but... They put him as first officer on this flight. By the way, I pulled up a map. It is only in Kentucky by like a mile. Now, yes. Now that the runway is longer. <laughs> this flight had 56 passengers and six, crews on, six crew members on board. The flight crew filed an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan. And what an Instrument Flight Rules plan means, there's two types. There's VFR and IFR. There's visual flight rules and instrument flight rules. Instrument flight rules means that they can fly with the instruments only for almost the entire flight. Except for takeoff and landing, they're supposed to do those by hand. Visual flight rules is what most private pilots have when they're new. That means that they are able to fly using visuals out the window. They still use instruments, but they don't rely on instruments for flight. Meanwhile, instrument flight rules relies on instruments for flight. The flight departed at 5.38 p.m. from LaGuardia. It was scheduled to depart at 5, but was delayed because the aircraft had been used as a reserve for another flight. This will be important later. Yep. Their requested cruising altitude was 35,000 feet. Nice and high. Their alternate airport was listed as Louisville, Kentucky. At 6.45 p.m., they contacted the company radio, or A-R-I-N-C, and reported that their estimated arrival time at that point was 7.05 p.m. They were advised by the A-R-I-N-C 
that the altimeter setting was 30.01 inches of mercury at Cincinnati at the time. So what that means, nominal at sea level is 29 29.92. 30.01 is a little bit higher, so they have to adjust the setting on their altimeter to show that the airport is at the correct altitude and that they're at the correct altitude compared to the airport in the area. It adjusts the altitude per the pressure of the air outside. So the inches of mercury is related to the pressure of the air at the airport. At approximately 6.55 p.m., the flight was 27 miles southeast of the airport, and the flight was in contact with Cincinnati Approach. The flight was given several descent clearances at that time, but at 6.57 and 38 seconds, the flight reported out of 5,000 feet, for 4,000 feet, and how about a control VFR? We have the airport. So what that means is they were descending through 5,000 feet, heading for 4,000 feet was their given altitude to level off at, and they were requesting to change to a VFR for their approach into the airport. So visual flight rules. Because they were running late. They were running late. They didn't want to go through the whole instrument approach. They just wanted to land. The approach controller replied to continue to the airport and cleared for a visual approach to runway 18, precip lying just to the west boundary of the airport and its southbound. So at that point, they knew there was also rain in the area. Mind you, it's already dark there. It was November, and it was right about 7 o'clock. So it was dark. So they could see lightning in the distance, and they could see the clouds, but where they were, they could see the airport. The crew acknowledged the clearance and was given instructions to descend to 2,000 at their discretion, 2,000 feet. At 6.58 and 41 seconds, the approach controller informed them that they were 6 miles southeast of the airport and instructed them to contact Cincinnati Tower. So there's a difference between approach and, and tower. Approach is in a building where they only have radar contact with the airplane. They can only see them on radar and such. Uh, tower is actually at the airport premises and can see them out the window, but also has radar. Tower handles things directly related to the airport. Approach just handles the airplane getting into the area. The following conversation occurred between the flight crew and the tower controller. At 6.59 and 6 seconds, AA-383 said, Cincinnati Tower, it's American 383, we're 6 southeast, and uh, control VFR. That's what it reads. So that meant they were six miles southeast, as they had been told by the approach controller, and they were telling them that they are VFR. This is to tell the tower what they already are, where they are, and what they're already doing. At 6:59 and 15 seconds, tower responded, "American 383, Cincinnati Tower, runway 18, wind 230 degrees at five, altimeter three even." So the altimeter changed slightly, and there's a little bit of wind coming, wind at 230 degrees. So imagine, again, like we have described with the runway, 360 degrees, where 360 is north, 90 is east, 180 is south, and 270 is west. So 230 is southwest. So the wind is coming from that direction, and it was going at 5 knots or 5 miles an hour. So about, I guess 5 knots would have been about 7 miles an hour, constant wind. At 6.59 and 21 seconds, American Airlines 383 responded, Roger, runway 18. All this to me is just interesting because it reads so nonchalant, almost like 
it, it kind of describes the time like it's not as clear cut with some of the directions. They don't repeat back their call sign every single time. Everything's a little more conversational when they speak, which at the time is what was given to them. I mean, that was the professional handling. It wasn't, that wasn't wrong. At 6.59 and 23 seconds, Tower responded, Insight, clear to land, runway 18, American 383. At 6.59 and 28 seconds, American 383 responded, We're clear to land, roger. At 6.59 and 28 seconds, American 383 chimed back in and said, How far is the precip line now? 6.59 and 30 seconds, Tower said, Looks like it's just about over the field at this time, sir. We're not getting any on the field, however. At 6.59 and 35 seconds, A383 said, Okay. 6.59 and 40 seconds, Tower said, If we have a wind shift, I'll keep you advised as you turn on to final. 6.59 and 44 seconds, A383 responded, Thank you very much, we'd appreciate it. At 7 and 6 seconds, Tower said, American 383, we were beginning to pick up a little rain right now. At 7 and 11 seconds, A383 said, Okay. At 7.01 and 11 seconds, so one minute later, Tower said, American 383, you still got the runway? At 7.01 and 14 seconds, AA 383 said, ah, just barely, uh, pick up the ILS here. So that means at that point they wanted to switch to an instrument approach because they were starting to lose the runway. At 7.01 and 19 seconds, the Tower responded, American 383 approach lights, flashers, and runway lights are all on high intensity. So they bumped the lighting at the airport, up to super bright so they could see him in any condition. At 7.01 and 22 seconds, AA-383 said, okay. This okay was the last time that AA-383 was ever heard from. The tower personnel first saw AA-383 when they were about four miles southeast of the airport on the downwind leg. So when you're flying an approach in an airplane, downwind is parallel to the runway in the opposite direction from what you will be landing. So that would have had them going north, then their base leg would be perpendicular to the runway, north of the runway, so heading westbound, and then turning left again to go southbound to touchdown on the runway. So that is base, that's your downwind is parallel, base is perpendicular, and final is your touchdown direction. So to go along with this narration, the investigation board did create a quasi 3d depiction of this incident yeah that this was in the the mid 60s it was i mean it's rudimentary and in the report since it's it's scanned it's kind of broken but still visible but real quick finish the story so i know what happens yes before we get into that yep so i will repeat the tower personnel first saw a 383 when they were about four miles southeast of the airport on the downwind leg in a northerly direction. The navigation lights were clearly visible and the flight appeared to be operating at a normal traffic pattern altitude. As the flight began a left turn onto the base leg and continued to descend, the air traffic controller continued to watch the airplane but lost sight of it when it was two to three miles northeast of the airport because he believed that it flew behind some weather phenomena. At this point, the story switched to witness statements. Witnesses saw the airplane when it was about four miles east of the airport on a northerly northerly course and proceeded across the Ohio River, then turned left or westbound and noted that the navigation and landing lights were on and the aircraft at that point appeared to be low. Witnesses on the base leg 
so that the aircraft appeared to be low there as well. A witness half mile from the crash site watched the last 10 seconds of the flight. He stated that he first saw the bright landing lights coming from the east toward him as the plane turned left to approach runway 18. He noted that the aircraft banked rapidly into the left turn. It then crashed into a hillside and burst into flames. He stated that there appeared to be nothing unusual about the aircraft itself, itself except that it was too low. Weather at the crash site was cloudy at the moment of the impact, with rain, light rain, and with a de uh, decent visibility, followed by heavy rain just minutes after the impact. So the thing that you said that they didn't have, I'm guessing, is the terrain alarm? Yeah. Yeah. But here's a question. Uh, again, I know a lot of people hate when I say this. Get over it. <laughs> I'm sure we'll cover this later, but... Why was nobody watching their altitude while they were descending to turn to land? Yep. They don't know exactly why. That's just it. It gets this gets really is this mysterious. Cockpit voice recorders? No, it that's... is. It is to some extent. Yeah, there were cockpit voice recorders, but, but they're pretty rudimentary. They were pretty rudimentary. Okay. So they didn't really know what was happening in the cockpit. When no, this they only had ATC recordings to go on. And in any case, it really didn't matter much for what they all they had to go on was pretty mysterious. We'll get into that. No witnesses that saw the crash said that they saw any lightning around or on the aircraft at the time, even though there was weather in the area. A light aircraft was flying in the area at 2,000 feet and watched the whole thing transpire. And he assumed. What he saw was the landing lights of the accident aircraft pass below him as a streak of light to the right very quickly, and then they slowly diminished until he saw a large fire erupt from the hillside. He described the weather where he was and where the aircraft was seen as generally VFR, flight, visual flight rules. There were only four survivors of the crash. Two revenue passengers, a flight attendant, and a non-revenue pilot who was just transitioning to another airport who was sitting in first class, who had looked out the window moments before the crash and noticed that he thought they were low, but he did not have much concern about it, so he sat back in his seat, then quickly noticed shortly thereafter the sound of the flaps extending behind him, then immediately after that heard the first thud of a wing striking a tree, followed immediately by a heavy impact. He was thrown to the floor of the cabin with a lot of debris piling on top of him, but he managed to dig his way out pretty quickly. He noticed flames at the rear of the cabin, so he worked his way forward, where he stepped out of the front of the aircraft because it was missing. During the final approach, he remembered seeing the strobe lights reflecting off of the scud clouds, which are low-lying clouds below the actual storm itself, and he noticed some water streaking horizontally along his window, meaning that it was likely raining. When he stepped out of the airplane, there was light rain, but a heavy rain commenced about 30 seconds later. The other three survivors were thrown from the aircraft and did not have any recollection of the crash or the aftermath. And that's just probably probably fortunate. I don't blame that for a second. Yeah. They probably had massive head, head injuries. But essentially, all four of the survivors were at the very front of the airplane. The crash site was about two miles north of the runway threshold for runway 18. An initial impact was with a tree to the right wing at an altitude of 665 feet above sea level. 
which was 225 feet below the published altitude of the airport of 890 feet. So at that point, they were already below the altitude of the airport. Because they were in the river basin. They were in the river basin, right. The accident occurred at 7.01 and 27 seconds. There were a total of 53 passengers and five crew that perished. That's all I have for the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to note real quick that Christy just shamed me for how many times I have to go to the bathroom in a day. <laughs> it's a lot. You have the bladder of a five-year-old. We already covered this. Conveniently, Therefore, you will be working with, with five-year-olds, so just bathroom break a similar time. Just just try to offset the schedule, like opposite the fifth grader, or the five-year-old. Well, I can't go to the bathroom while I'm in class. Yeah, that's fair, but... It's like the five minutes in between that I can go to the bathroom. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway. Moving on. Okay. So, this investigation was not performed by the NTSB. They weren't a thing yet, were they? They were not, they a, were thing not a thing yet. They weren't formed until April of 1967, and this occurred in 65. So, this investigation was done by their predecessor, the Civil Aeronautics Board of the Bureau of Safety in Washington, D.C. Thankfully, they were also a lot more succinct in their writing than the NTSB. This report was less than 50 pages. Thank God. The investigators were able to determine that the spoilers were extended and engines were at idle for the descent up until the plane entered its approach pattern, basically. The flight entered the downwind approach leg approximately four miles east of runway 18 at about 1,100 feet above the ground and at an approximate 800 feet per minute descent rate. This descent continued to an altitude of 200 feet above the ground, at which point they gradually turned toward the final approach, and at this point the descent rate increased 2,100 feet per minute for 10 seconds, during which time the aircraft descended into the valley formed by the Ohio River. Is 2,100 feet per second, like... Per minute? Or, yeah, per minute, sorry. Yes, that would have been a lot at that point. And that's really why that witness that was only a half mile from the crash noted that when they went into the rapid bank, they suddenly... Yeah, it happened during the turn. More than likely, they were already in a pretty steep descent but you put yourself into a turn in the aircraft if you don't compensate for the forces on the aircraft at that point it will actually descend faster faster into the ground because it loses lift on those wings when Mm -hmm. you put it into the turn yeah makes sense there's ways to compensate for that but they didn't the final 10 seconds of flight showed a decrease in descent rate to about 625 feet per minute until impact a lot of this because they had such rudimentary recorders, a lot of it was determined based, especially the flaps configurations and their velocities was dependent on actually looking at operating procedures for American Airlines, which this depiction that the Aeronautics Board created and is on our website, it shows a dashed line, which is the normal VFR profile 
provided by American Airlines. Now, investigators did acknowledge that there were some changes to be made solely because they were more than three miles more east than the normal approach. So they understood like some compensations had to be made for that, but it was still irregular. Needless to say, they crashed. I think part of the issue is it was really dark. It was rainy. They couldn't see the ground as well as they, I mean, they probably could see the runway, but they couldn't see the actual ground. Yes, I will get into it. The only thing they were able to effectively conclude from that analysis is that the two pilots did not give proper or sufficient attention to their altitude indicators. Obviously. Quote, it is difficult to reconcile how two experienced captains could spend almost two minutes descending below 1,200 feet above the ground under adverse weather conditions and not properly monitor altitude. As such, they investigated further to explain it as it couldn't have been that simple. There were more factors involved. The first and maybe most obvious factor in this was the weather. Both witness reports and the United States Weather Bureau observed a line of rain and thunderstorms moving into the area from the northwest at 30 miles per hour, complete with cloud-to-cloud lightning. Visibility between 702 and 703, literally right after the accident, was recorded on runway 18 to have dropped from 5 to 7 miles of visibility down to 1 and an eighth miles, and then increased a little more to 2 miles right after. Cloud cover descended from 4,000 feet to 2,500 feet above the ground with fractostratus clouds, or scud, and light rain at about 1,500 feet. Based on all of this, it was determined that the pilot's visibility would have been about two miles or less, depending on the rainfall exactly where they were. Wind was determined not to have been a factor. As we mentioned earlier, it was pretty low. There wasn't... It was, yeah. That wasn't a factor, basically. The pilots were warned of the precipitation during their weather briefing at LaGuardia, so it wasn't... It didn't take them by surprise by any means. They knew about it. This was explained as... Possibly one of the reasons that they descended, I wouldn't say more quickly, but they did descend lower than normal, and it could have been to get out of the cloud cover so that they could see better. The next factor was terrain. They were flying in and around the Ohio River Basin, which had the potential to give them an optical illusion of being at the proper altitude because the basin was 400 feet lower than the runway. Because of the river terrain, they also didn't have city lights to guide them. They couldn't use that as a reference when gauging their altitude without instruments. Not that they should have really been doing that, but I won't get into that spiel. Lastly, they looked into a possible misreading or misinterpretation of the altimeter. The board did not believe that there was any kind of malfunction for whatever reason of the altimeter based on their investigation. They went into quite a bit of detail on that. I don't feel like it's really beneficial. Basically, they just didn't think anything was wrong with the altimeter. Was this a time when, and I'm sure, I don't know if this pertains to this at all, but when the plane crashes, the gauges freeze? Or is this too early for that? Dependent on the type of gauge is why it would freeze. And even today, there are gauges that will freeze. More than likely, what would happen instead is the force of the impact would actually cause the needle to leave a mark on the face of the dials because of that mark that's what they would use however some of them do freeze in place 
So they determined that if they were to have misread or misinterpreted the altitude, it would have been due to distraction and insufficient attention paid to the instruments. One factor, one large factor, may have been that they were trying to land quickly. This meant that they had to compress their timetable during their landing, and they did this because they were delayed in departing LaGuardia, as we had mentioned, and they wanted to keep their schedule. The most prominent indication that this could have been the case was that they decided, despite the bad weather conditions, that they wanted to do a visual approach. It's quick and dirty, basically. They didn't want to take the time to do an instrument approach. And maybe that wasn't the wisest idea. 2020 hindsight. What is also very likely is an over-reliance on one, of one another. These captains had actually flown together before. Several times. I think they said seven times prior. And this built a rapport between them. Because of this, quote, it is possible that the Czech captain, confident in the other pilot's ability to operate the plane safely, would assume that the altimeters and other flight instruments were being monitored and could therefore concentrate on maintaining visual contact with the airport. Moreover, it is possible that the captain being observed was secure in the knowledge that a well-qualified Czech captain was in the right seat performing co-pilot duties. He could therefore, in view of the rapidly decreasing visibility, concentrate on keeping the airport in sight, depending on visual reference to ground lights for altitude guidance with the assurance that the Czech captain was monitoring the flight instruments and would alert him to any unusual contingency. Yeah, because the Czech captain should be the one monitoring all that stuff anyway. But the Czech captain could have thought, oh, it's not a big deal, I will maintain visual. So, basically so they both thought, I'll maintain visual contact with the airport, and neither of them were like, I should watch the instruments. Yeah. They probably didn't even say anything out loud either. Nope. They were probably just like... The other guy got this. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't and need it, to say that out loud. And that may be, but honestly, I mean, we have no idea. From every radio communication that they had and everything that was happening, it appeared that they were handling everything very professionally. I mean, they were both captains, and even the one that was a new captain was trying to do everything as well as he could at the time, because he was new to being a captain. He had been a first officer for a long time. Now, given that, investigators knew that something went wrong procedurally. It was standard operating procedure for American Airlines that the pilot monitoring call out airspeed, altitude, and rate of descent at and below 500 feet above the ground. Based on the fact that the crash happened, investigators concluded that the procedure wasn't followed. Yep. Obviously. Because they would have known if they were under 500 feet. Exactly. And this could have been due to distraction, misinterpretation of the altimeter, or both. They also concluded, this is the weird side note, that the flight engineer would have been completing the landing checklist and wouldn't have been monitoring instruments at the time. I don't know how they concluded that. It was literally like a sentence saying that, but... It means that they're not the ones who... Yes, which I think is odd, though, because the flight, like, that's the flight engineer's job. Look at the instruments. I don't yeah. know. It doesn't specify what exactly he would have been doing outside of that. majority of what a flight engineer does anyways is, while he does a lot of navigation functions, most of the instruments he's monitoring, especially during takeoff and landing, have to do with the systems of the airplane. They don't have anything to do with... Altitude or... Where the airplane is. Yeah. Yeah, He generally has to do with how the engines are operating, how hydraulics are operating, make sure everything is lining up every time they actually operate a function of the airplane. When they put the flaps down, he should be monitoring hydraulics, make sure they don't suddenly have an issue with hydraulics. Makes sense. Okay. We don't need a UA-232 here. Nope. Nope. 
One thing that investigators were not able to make a conclusion on was the effect of lightning in their visibility of their instruments or anything else. There was, there was confirmed cloud-to-cloud lightning, and that could have been flashing around the cockpit, but they couldn't determine if and how much of a cause that was. And that's all I got. Okay. Basically, they knew that both captains, because they were both captains, didn't monitor their altimeters, and there was a host of reasons why that could have been, but they couldn't really pin down one reason above another. It was really mysterious. Procedure wasn't being followed. Procedure wasn't being followed. In some way, shape, or form. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously that's like the most obvious thing that could have happened, but it's still really mysterious. Because every indication they had was that things were going professionally. If you listen only to the recordings, they were handling everything as professionally as possible. They had no idea how low they were. Right. And they were using visual to the point where they thought they knew where they were visually from the ground. But they but couldn't they see. But it was dark and it was raining. They and no there idea. was no, no warning. Which as there was we, no ground proximity warning system. Which we covered in EA four oh one didn't happen until like the nineteen eighties sometime. Well, that's where things get interesting. But I'll get into that in a minute. Christy's gonna do some boobity boops. Some boobity boop research. Boobity boop research real quick to to fact check me. Apparently people look that up as a ringtone. The ground proximity warning system? Yeah, you're as surprised as I am on that. That's weird. Oh, they probably they probably do the don't sink one because it sounds like don't think in every cockpit. <laughs> no. He goes, don't think. Don't think. Don't think. <laughs> it's like, I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm trying not to think, but stop talking. <laughs> um... Also, I just wanted to mention that this type of crash is called controlled flight into terrain. Yes. See fit. But this term was not used at this time. What did they call it at the time? No, like, they didn't... They didn't have a thing for that. They just crashed. They just crashed. Let me look up when that term started being used. Boopity-boops. The term was coined by engineers at Boeing in the late 1970s. Okay, so that was late 1970s. This was long before that. Yes. Obviously. 15 years, at least. (laughs) At least. Well, around 15. As a result of studies and recommendations by the NTSB, in 1974, the FAA required all large turbine and turbojet airplanes to install a ground proximity warning system. So it was the 70s. It was nine years later. In 1979, the UN, the United Nations International Civil Aviation Organization, otherwise known as ICAO, recommended the installation worldwide. So So by the end of the seventies it was recommended to be on everything. So or by, it, it was. Like so, they were required to Well, have by it. the they probably would have set the requirement to be nineteen eighty or nineteen eighty, whatever. Yeah. That it's actually installed on every airplane worldwide. In March two thousand, the US FAA amended operating rules to require that all US pre- registered turbine powered airplanes with six or more passenger seats be equipped with the FAA approved T A W S. TAWS, yep. Terrain alert warning system, I think. Terrain awareness warning system. Terrain awareness, yeah, you're right. Terrain awareness warning system. Awesome. And the invention of the ground proximity warning system is credited to C. Donald Bateman, a Canadian-born engineer. Cool. I mean, that's good. There's there's your boop-a-da-boop research. Cool. Well, I'll get more into that in a minute. But 
As for findings, they listed them as conclusions. Hold on. I have a really cool statistic. A kind of sad statistic, actually. Okay. Prior to the development of the ground proximity warning system, large passenger aircraft were involved in an average of three and a half fatal controlled flight into terrain accidents per year. Per year. Oof. And this didn't happen sooner? (laughs) I mean, with the technology, sometimes it takes a while for them to get... I mean... It's a lot of development they had to do with the technology they had at the time, let's be honest. But, okay, that's true. It's just one of those things where you're like, this really should have happened, like, way sooner than it actually did. Yeah, but... They just didn't have the technology to do it. Right. A 2006 were- report stated that from 1974, when the FAA made it a requirement, there had not been a single passenger fatality in a fit crash by a large jet in U.S. airspace. In U.S. airspace, right? That, that specifically because yeah. we covered one that it didn't work very well on in Indonesian airspace. Yes, right. go back to episode six if you want to figure that out. So, in this report for findings, they were listed as conclusions. Their conclusions included that there was no design deficiencies or failures found with the aircraft at all. So it was nothing to do with the airplane, none of the systems, none of that. They concluded that because the flight had departed 20 minutes late, and though weather conditions were generally VFR at the time, the looming storm pressured the flight crew to expedite their approach to the airport before the weather deteriorated their visuals to the point that they would be unable to land. They also found that as the flight turned onto the base leg, the visibility likely reduced rapidly, and the pilots became preoccupied with maintaining visual contact with the airport, thus preventing the flight crew from properly monitoring the instruments and, most importantly, the altitude. They found that last point that the flight crew would have had visual contact with the airport was 13 seconds before impact, as they descended below the altitude of the airport. Thus, obscuring it from view, the flight would could have accomplished an ascent back to proper altitude at that point. That's all there is, really, for conclusions. And there was only one recommendation... <laughs> That recommendation, funny enough, was they recommended that an oral and visual warning system be implemented into the instrumentation of the aircraft to promptly alert the flight crew of a dangerous altitude deviation, which was already in the process of being tested and implemented at the time. So, yes, it took until 74 for it to be mandatory, but at the time of this incident, they were already working on a system that was produced an oral and visual warning for the flight crew to prevent this from happening. So it's not that this wasn't already a thought and already in in work. In 1965 it was, but it wasn't. There was very much a rudimentary thing and it wasn't possible yet. That's the only recommendation. And that's it. That's the whole thing. Wow. Okay. The report, yeah. This was interesting because the report wasn't very long. It was 33 pages, of which half of were, like, well, the charts narration of and the narration of the story. Yeah, the narration of the crash. And there wasn't much analysis. There wasn't much recommendations. wasn't much conclusions, which is okay. But it meant that this whole thing was very mysterious. They know what they think caused the accident based on all they had, all they knew. But what they think happened... Really, there's not many facts to prove that. No. 
But one thing that they can conclude is this could have been avoided had there been a warning system in place. Correct. Yeah, more than likely. And so that's part of why we wanted to cover this crash is this was part of the beginning of the ground proximity warning system, which is one of the things that has made aviation infinitely safer. Yeah, being mandatory. Yeah. I pulled up a little bit more on the ground proximity warning system. There are several instances in which this alarm would go off. There are seven, actually. Excessive descent rate, it will say sink rate, pull up. Sink rate. (laughs) That is what it says, I swear. Excessive terrain closure rate, which is fancy talk for you're going to crash into something. And in which case it'll say terrain, pull up. Yep. Altitude loss after takeoff or with a high power setting, which it will say don't sink. Don't sink. Unsafe terrain clearance, too low terrain, too low gear, too low flaps, is what it will say. Excessive deviation from the glide slope, it'll just yell glide slope. Yep. An excessive steep bank angle, it'll yell bank angle. Bank angle. Yeah, I've heard that before. And Uh, then when somebody is doing flight sim, shh, (laughs) sorry. And then wind shear protection, in which case it will just yell wind shear. Um, in some of its initial versions, it did have a blind spot, which we briefly kind of covered parallelly. Since it can only gather data from directly below the aircraft, it must predict future terrain features. If there is a dramatic change in terrain, such as a steep slope, the ground proximity warning system will not detect the aircraft closure rate until it is too late for evasive action. AKA Garuda. Running into a mountain. Yeah. Yep. It's unfortunate, it really is, and it is something that they're very much developing a lot more now that we have GPS satellites. Let me and, get into that. And so on and so forth. In the late 1990s, improvements were developed and the system is now named the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System. The system is combined with a worldwide digital terrain database and relies on GPS technology. Yep. That was all from the Wikipedia page on the Ground Proximity Warning System, in case y'all are curious. GPWS. <laughs> It okay, has okay. a section for incidents and then doesn't list any flights. <laughs> That's because whoever made the Wikipedia page was too lazy to do so. I guess. Challenge accepted. There were a lot. Actually, no, wait, no. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> there were a lot. There were a lot. There were a lot. A lot. This so, is one of them. This was American... Airlines 383. 383. Um, and now we're going to transfer into our little... Plug. Plug. Real quick, while she's pulling that up, I have gotten some feedback from Nick. <laughs> from Nick's co-workers. From, co-workers. from people I know. Yeah, who, and this week, the week that we're recording this, episode 9 came out, okay? And those of you who've heard it, I got very angry during episode 9. Um, I want to say that, first of all, all the questions I ask on these episodes are 100% authentic. They come into my brain and I ask them. If you think that's dumb, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about that. It's the way my brain works. Also, my rage in any episode is 100% authentic. I'm pretty she sure rages we... rages about everything. Yeah. In we, real life. We warned all of you about this pretty early. Yeah. I am 100% salt. Yep. So Much I rage. get... And I get angry really fast when stuff is stupid. Like, when stupid stuff happens and it could have been prevented... That's when I get angry. 
this was not one of those. Was not one of those. Like the they didn't have a warning system. The pilots were in weather. It's a little bit different. I mean, they should have been watching their altitude, sure, but there were a lot of factors that went into this that had nothing to do with the plane <laughs> or the company. It was really the pilots trying to rush themselves and really they can't be sure what happened because they didn't have enough information. So this one, it's really hard to get angry about. But everything that I rage about is 100% authentic. And I'm sorry if that bothers you, but that's just the way I am. Um, so, and ask, like, ask either of these two. I'm like that in real life. Yeah. She All the time. everything. So. All the time. Yeah. Those of you who may be a little bit upset about that, I'm sorry, but that's just the, that that's, literally. That's who Miranda is. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to change because you don't like that. I'm not <laughs> a huge believer in horoscopes, but for those of you who can guess, Miranda's a Leo. Yeah. Pretty strong. Aggressive. Salty. Bossy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. Anyway. She'll the plug. Like, she'll okay. She will come and she will clean our place because she wants to. Because yeah. she it bothers her to the point that she takes over that like she she's will like, do our I am dishes. going to clean this. It's like Because okay. it bothers me. I get it. But like you just clean it. And I'm like, yeah. what are you doing? And she's like, I'm cleaning. It bothered me. I'm like <laughs> It okay. <laughs> I was like, I was going to clean that, but okay. It's one of those things where I have to do it because it's bothered me for so long. Like, I refuse to look at your kitchen right now. It's pretty bad. <coughs> so, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So, our Patreon. We are launching this, when you hear this, tomorrow. So, starting tomorrow... You can find us on Patreon, and you can subscribe to us monthly. It is um, There are different tiers to which you can donate, and you get different benefits, depending on how much you decide to support us. One of the main goals we have, if we reach a subscriber contribution rate of $500 a month, we're going to put that towards opening a merchandise store. We need funds to start that. Some things you may be looking forward to are some boop-da-boop -boop research stuff. Or, <laughs> and people died stuff, because apparently I say that a lot. <laughs> yeah. You do. So, so picture a t-shirt saying boop-da-boop -boop research. Or dot-dot-dot, and people died. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to list some of the potential benefits. So, at our $2 tier, which is called Economy Class very aptly, you will have access to ad-free episodes. Um, the way that will work is once you subscribe, you will get an RSS link that you can copy, and we will have a list of podcast apps you can paste that into, and you'll get your own personal podcast feed that will have ad-free episodes from us. Including previous episodes and future episodes. Yep. At our $5 tier, which is business class, you will have the ad-free episodes, along with our blooper reels, which are growing. And more key is our unedited, uncensored post-episode conversations, which the first 10 seconds is pretty much Miranda swearing up a storm, and then us actually, like, having useful conversation. Today it won't be, because I'm not angry. But the past several ones we've done, <laughs> yeah, I got pretty angry, so. 
we try as hard as we can to make the normal episodes clean, not explicit, family friendly. Those are not family friendly. Yeah. Those are like not safe for work type things. So don't, if you listen to this, I don't know why you would listen to this out loud at work, but if you do, don't listen to those out loud at work. Or it'll be a lot of me just cussing all the time. So. Oh, really, all of us start cussing because we bottle it up. I swear a lot. Okay. At our $10 tier, which is first class, you get all of the things we mentioned previously, plus exclusive Miranda sods once a month. Yeah. The first episode, which we've already, I've said a few times, is Alaska 261. Again, if you don't like my rage, probably not a good idea to listen to those. Um, cause I do get a little ragey, although I am telling the story, so it's not quite as bad. No, it's not as bad. As when You get I'm... most of your rage out when you read it. Yeah. And then you just come here and tell us. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you will also get our theme song as a ringtone, and the plain song at the end of our theme song as a text tone. So that could, I mean, I don't really know who keeps their phone off of silent anymore, but for those if of you- If you really want that, you got it. I don't know, maybe we'll do the- Ground proximity warning system is one now. <laughs> that's probably, eh, I don't know if we could get that, but. Yeah, that's not really ours to give away. But it's also but maybe not copyrighted. Probably from, isn't copyrighted. It might be patented, though. It's part of a system. We'll do some boop to boop research. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also, you will have what we want to call priority boarding. Your suggestions for future episodes will take priority over everyone else's suggestions, basically. We will scoot stuff out of our schedule to put your suggestion in where we would have had something else. Instead of just waiting for an open slot. Yeah. And then our most quote-unquote expansive level is a our $20 tier, which is you get to be flight crew. At which point you will have access to everything else we said previously, plus live stream Q&As, which we haven't really decided how frequently we'll do those. Probably at least once a month. At least yeah. Exclusive polls for episode ideas. And the biggest thing that I'm personally super excited about is we made embroidered logo patches and we will send those to you for free. Yeah. That's a. I mean, you're, you're... paying $20 a month for it, anyways, but. I know. Yeah. But. <laughs> you make what we do, like, great. Yeah. It's our thank you for putting this much money into our everything. A lot of upgrades we want to make. We do want to upgrade some of our equipment. Um, get a new laptop because Nick's laptop is a piece of crap. It's old. Um, open the merch store. Maybe one day we'll go on tour. That would be funded by Patreon mostly. And it would be over the summer. Yeah, because Miranda yeah. Miranda got that teaching because I job gotta now. teach. So, or it would have to be like during winter break or something when I have time off. And we don't contribute more than you can, basically, like. This is for funsies. If you are a poor college student like me, I'm the now the only one in the room that is a poor college student. I'm still poor. I'm just not a college student. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still poor, and I haven't been a college student for a while. So us poor people plus the college student, <laughs> you don't have to contribute $20 a month. You don't have to contribute 10 If you can just contribute a dollar a month, great. Or two, the $2 a month to get the ad-free episodes, great. Yeah, cool. That helps us out a lot too, because we have Expenses. already spent quite a bit on this. I mean, I think we've already put in at least three hundred dollars into this. 
Well, uh, yeah, at maybe least, more. Probably more. Yeah, I mean, between everything, yeah, it's probably more than that. But yeah, it's 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 been worth it. I enjoy it a lot. But it definitely would be nice to recoup some of that and maybe help us expand. Fuel. Yeah. It'll. Um, we also want to expand more. Um, we've talked in the past about having several more podcasts, but it's kind of hard to do that. It is, but without you without fun. more funds. Yeah. Yeah, you probably will get a couple of those here in the new year. So if that happens, we will plug that in the next episode. I'm not going to put a timeline on that. I'm stressed already. I get it. You will do, be doing the editing for those Well, episodes. those ones are mostly my podcasts. So yeah. Yes. I'm stressed just editing this one. Well, this is the big one. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there's my plug. Yeah. So if that's our Patreon, if you would like to do so, it will go live tomorrow. Uh, because this comes out New Year's Eve, so it will be twenty January first, twenty twenty. It will be live. But more than likely, most of you will listen to this after the New Year. So Happy New Year! Happy New Year! <laughs> In that case, it's already live. So yeah, so go check go, it out. Go do it. Thanks for all the new listeners too. Yeah, we have a lot. Yeah, we have a ton. It's kind of weird because when so I, I posted, I, I do post about every other week our episode on a bunch of Facebook pages related to aviation. That I'm part of. And uh, after, not last week's, but the week before, episode, the, it was been episode seven. Yeah. Just so you know. Um, I posted that thing everywhere. And we got like a ton more listens on that one than most of our episodes. It bumped up to like our third most listened second. episode. It's our second, it's our most, second listen. most listened episode now. You guys gave Chris a huge ego. I yeah. Mean, not that he didn't already have one. But. Yeah. It was, also, cool to have a, it was cool to have him on, but. Real quick, we've run into this already, so I want to address it. If you think we got some of our facts wrong, please let us know. Yeah. But also, give us a source from where you're citing it, because if we don't have a source, we can't really believe that what we said was incorrect and what you said is correct. So we need an actual, like, if it's from... um, specifically the one I'm thinking of and the person you're probably listening to us right now, but if it's from an episode of something that you watched and it was contrary to what we said, I need a season, I need an episode number, I need what what it's called, I need to know so that if we watch it, we can fix it, first yeah. of all. And we do appreciate the feedback. Yes. We do we do want to make sure that we're telling you the right stuff, which is why we We've really restricted ourselves to mostly just the report because the report is the facts. It is have. what is published officially by the investigating board, right, or committee, or whatever. Yeah, right. So it's not really. There's nothing you can really argue against that. It's nice to have more to add to that, but ultimately we've restricted ourselves to that a lot because it is what we it's know. Fact. Yeah, it's what we know. The internet has a lot of misinformation, and we. We definitely want to make sure we're telling the right stuff. And if there's something really interesting we missed, we would love to tell that too. Also, if for, I don't, I hope this isn't the case for any of you, but if any of you have been involved in a major commercial aviation incident, we are willing to Skype, phone call, whatever. We want you on our show. It's kind of morbid, and we're sorry that that happened to you, but also. But we want to hear your story. Yeah. Yeah. And because you were there. And you were part of it. You have a unique perspective that is unachievable otherwise. Yeah. So, but like I said, if you think we got something wrong, if you want stuff to add, 
you need to send us a source. We need a source so that we can be like, oh, we said this wrong. Here's the source that states it correctly. You can't give us information and then not give us a proper source where it came from. Right. We will be doing follow-up episodes eventually on some of the stuff, or at least tagging follow-ups on the end of other episodes here in the future with uh, those little bits where we want to add something or something to that effect. But eventually there, we will do like full follow-up episodes on a couple of incidents that we found were really key. Things that we learned more or things we may visit someday. For example, my coworker let me know that the guy we discussed on UA-232 who went back in to save the kid is the announcer for the Rockies. I would love to have him on the show. Yeah, we've said that before. Yeah. If he's listening, please contact us. Between, if you know him, tell him we want him on the show. Between that and then I want to visit Sioux City. They have a whole exhibit there at the museum and actually go see the crash site and all that stuff. I feel like we could do a full follow-up on UA-232, as well as some of these other crashes, but that one in particular. Go see some other stuff, too, from and some you, other museums. And your Patreon contributions will help fund those adventures. Okay, well, sorry, that was a little bit of a long thing, but that was a few things that we had to cover. Some housekeeping. Yeah. So, that was our episode for today. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. Uh, And catch you next year. See you in the new decade. I hate you. (laughs) I hate you so much. Keep your your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.